HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. I think that that stemmed from us really kind of walking down this quote-unquote ethnic aisle, right, in mainstream grocery stores. I think we were just like, whoa, <laughs> like one, why does this still exist? But two, why do the products in this aisle not feel representative of the communities that they purport to represent? Um, and, and we're seeing that folks, you know, who are both, you know, Asian and non-Asian alike aren't, aren't particularly happy with those products. And we're like, okay, that, that kind of sucks. Like, what if we kind of reimagined this from scratch and, and tried to do it the right way? Um, and it was born from that central theme, right, of how can we in many ways like reclaim and celebrate these cuisines in ways that they haven't been done before in American homes. That was Kim Pham on In the Sauce, speaking about the start of Omsom, a food brand she founded with her sister to bring bold Asian flavors into American households. Their work to enrich and expand beyond the so-called ethnic aisle raises the question of how the Southeast Asian diaspora has influenced American dining. Pad Thai has become as ubiquitous as the hamburger, but what food, flavors, and culinary traditions are yet to become mainstream? And what stories remain to be told? Plus, influence is not exerted only one way. Many Southeast Asian chefs influence their communities and are influenced by them in equal measure. Whether it's incorporating local ingredients, feeling inspired by family heritage, or building a loyal following, even as challenges like COVID persist, exchanges of knowledge and delicious bites abound. In celebration of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, 
We'll introduce you to influential chefs, entrepreneurs, and artisans who are bringing creativity and commensality to their work. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three on HRN. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. The indigenous Hmong people of China and Southeast Asia have forged a unique cuisine that blends flavors and techniques from China, Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. Now, Hmong chefs are taking inspiration from America, too. The Twin Cities in Minnesota have the largest Hmong population in the United States, after many families relocated as refugees following the Vietnam War. Yia Vang is the founder of Union Hmong Kitchen in Minneapolis, a semi-finalist for the 2022 James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant. He sat down with Darren Bresnitz from HRN Snacky Tunes back when he was just starting out in 2018 to talk about the history and philosophy of Hmong cuisine. So in the refugee camp coming to America, what was the importance of food in your family? Yeah, so uh, the Hmong people don't have a country or a flag or even an anthem of our own and the only thing that we did really have that we kept close to especially for indigenous people that are always moving um was your food so every every generation did a cooked a certain way and they passed it on to the next generation which passed on to the next generation and how familiar were people with Hmong food outside of the Hmong community so some of the first Hmong like restaurant entrepreneurs who came here they um put their food under the Thai emblem. So a lot of Hmong-owned restaurants have the word Thai in it, or, or it's known as a Thai restaurant. So what the Hmong people did was they cooked Thai food and even Chinese food because it was the most marketable way of doing food here. Even to today, like there's really no quote-unquote Hmong food place. A lot of it does Thai. They do Laotian, low Vietnamese, or Chinese too. You know, Hmong food is kind of like a, uh, a mashing of different Southern Southeast Asian cultures because of how our people have been influenced by them. That sort of brings up the whole idea of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And in starting Union Kitchen, did you want to open an authentic Hmong restaurant? Or is there levels yeah. of authenticity yeah. of people who are from your parents or grandparents' yeah. generation who goes, this is an authentic, yeah. and you go, I know it's not, but we have to update it. Like, like what's yeah. your thought on that? So what, what we tell people from Union Kitchen standpoint, we say, and Hmong food isn't a type of food. It's a philosophy of food. So that means we have the freedom. We have the freedom to do what we want. Um, the word Hmong is actually translated to mean, uh, meaning free. So we're, we're, our people is known as a free people, where we, we're not confined to a certain land or to a certain type of rules or a certain type of tradition. And that's what I love about being Hmong. We have never had a home, so wherever we've gone, we've learned from the land. We learn from the people from the land. So it would make complete sense that, you know, 50, 60 years ago, our, my grandparents and my parents were living in Laos and they're learning from the Laotians and they're, they're eating from the fruits of Laos and Thailand, right? Wouldn't it make complete sense that our people that we're here now in the Midwest, and especially up here in the northern, northern Midwest in, in, in Minnesota, wouldn't we learn from the land here? And how much influence does Minneapolis have on the Hmong food that you're making? A lot. I say that it's the backdrop of what we're doing. Um, like, just even think about, like, Minnesota pork. Like, 
some of the best pork in the U.S. comes from Minnesota. So, like, knowing that, wow, we can get some really darn good pork out here. I think about root vegetables, you know. Like, like Hmong diets, we usually don't use things like radishes and turnips and rutabagas and all that stuff. But I'm learning a lot about that. I'm learning about using our flavors and putting it into the different uh, produce that we get here. So, the best way I explain it to people, I'm like, if you want to know about Hmong food, you got to think of it this way. If you looked at it as, like, the Midwest produce product is, like, the canvas... Our flavors and our technique is like the paint. So we use our paint on the canvas that's given to us. A taste of place can have an important impact on a chef. We move from the Twin Cities to the borough of Brooklyn to meet Aisha Nurjaya, a James Beard Award finalist and the executive chef and partner of the popular New York Middle Eastern restaurants Shuka and Shuket. Sarah Mathis speaks to Chef Aisha about how her Brooklyn upbringing by her Indonesian father and Italian-American mother shaped her palate. Chef Aisha's father immigrated from Indonesia to the U.S. at 17 years old. He came by himself, knowing only one family friend in New York, whom he would later call his cousin. He started out working as a chef at an Indonesian restaurant in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, where he met Aisha's mother. Later, he worked as a chef on a transport ship, taking liquid natural gas between the U.S. and Asia. Because of his job, he would be away for four months and home for four months. So I asked Chef Aisha. Okay, so, you know, while he was home, was he cooking for you guys? Oh my god, it was like uh, the true episode of Chopped. <laughs> my mother's also an amazing cook, and they used to, like, kind of battle it out. When my dad would wake up, at the crack, probably like 5.45 in the morning, and he would literally like plan out the day's menu. So if we had to, when the, the months that he was home, we would eat breakfast before we went to school. He made us our lunch. When we got home, we had a snack, and we always had like a multi-course dinner. Well, that caught my attention. I wanted to know what was on the menu. He always used chilies, I think uh, ginger and cilantro were his, were his uh, favorite friends. Um, I always remember my dad uh, loving soup, so he would have like whole fish boiling where we would like be eating breakfast and you would see the fish heads pop up and then the tails come up so it kind of looked like they were swimming and my brother and I would like dare each other to eat the eyeball. On top of these Indonesian dishes from her dad, her mom was mastering more than just Italian food. She was cooking Italian, Spanish, American, and Indonesian dishes of her own. Delicious chicken in a clay pot, pasta and calamari with red sauce, and American classics like meatloaf with mashed potatoes on top. For years before she was cooking Middle Eastern food, Aisha was making Italian fare, inspired by her mom. Beyond the dueling chefs at home, she was also being influenced by other food cultures in Brooklyn. So, like, in basically every interview I've seen or heard with you, you've credited, like, going with your grandmother to, like... Uh, famous spots like Sahadi's and uh, Damascus on Atlantic Avenue for being your first kind of foray and like igniting your passion for Middle Eastern food. Uh, now that you've traveled extensively and done all this research, do those places still stack up for you? The answer is unequivocally 100%. I feel um, very much akin to the hummus at Sahadi's, uh, the Tata Masalata there. Damascus, I think their pita just has like a very distinct. Um, memory for me 
and some of the sweet things that they have there are also equally as delicious. It's that bite with those flavors at that specific place that give me that flavor memory, you know, that ratatouille moment, if you will. And thus was born Chef Aisha's affinity for Middle Eastern food. She has since traveled extensively throughout the Middle East, researching recipes and techniques for her dishes. But in addition to these studies, she sees the connection between the flavors she grew up with and the dishes she cooks now. I think if you come here to Shuka Shuket or you're just observing, you'll notice that I have a very, uh, I'm very fond of spices and building flavors on that. And I cannot help but to attribute that to what I learned from my dad while I was watching. Those family meals can have a deep impact on us, even in ways that are not immediately obvious to outsiders. When she cooks, Chef Aisha brings her Indonesian Italian heritage and her Brooklyn upbringing to the table to make outstanding Middle Eastern cuisine. We'll be right back with more Meat in 3 after a brief break. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let BentoBox design and build you a beautifully branded website. BentoBox websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. I'm Chaba Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back to Meat in 3. While Southeast Asia's savory dishes like pad thai, pho, or larb have gained popularity worldwide, its desserts remain lesser known. Alex Tren speaks with one chef who sets out to sweeten this reality. Hi there, uh, I'm Daniel Joseph Corpus. I'm a pastry chef and chocolatier based in New York City. Uh, I'm the founder of uh, Daniel Corpus Chocolatier. 
but most recently I was on Netflix's uh, School of Chocolate. As the only Asian American contestant on the show, Daniel is familiar with the lack of Southeast Asian representation in the culinary world. In culinary school, we have a very specific outlook as to how we produce or how we learn about pastry. It's always through the lens of Eurocentric cuisine. So we're always learning French pastry, Italian pastry, and so forth. That sometimes you don't necessarily analyze what Asian desserts are. Because let's be honest, we all know that what sells is caramel, hazelnut, strawberry, peanut butter, things that already are indulgent and things that sell. When it comes to the brand that I'm building and the company that I'm starting, my big focus is trying to ensure that I'm still representing who I am through my food. Daniel chose to do this through his choices of ingredients. I'm always trying to introduce a lot of Filipino or Asian American or Asian ingredients into what I do. So ingredients like, you know, the ones that let's say like people would be familiar with, like matcha, ube, um, or yuzu, but also ones that not everyone is familiar with, like pinipig, which is uh, young rice or muscovado, uh, which is a less refined brown, brown sugar. So like all these little things people always tend to ask, what is that? And it gives me the opportunity to, again, highlight these ingredients, but also my Filipino heritage by saying, yeah, no, these are ingredients that are indicative or found in the Philippines or in Asia, which sparks both people's curiosity, but also their awareness of other Asian ingredients. And he plans to use his upcoming Philippines Independent Days on June 12th as a chocolatey learning opportunity for his customer. So I'm actually working on one particular product right now, which is what I'm calling the Philippine Arau. Arau means sun in Tagalog. And if you've actually seen the Filipino flag, there's actually three regular stars uh, within a triangle. And then in the center of that triangle is this very distinct looking star, or rather the sun. And it has eight rays to essentially represent the eight kind of like founding provinces of the Philippines. So I've actually worked with a custom mold company to create a product that will be able to make that sun kind of like into a chocolate. And inside I'm trying to fill it with a calamansi caramel ganache as well as a passion fruit mango ganache, which are flavors truly, you know, that you really see in the Philippines. Daniel's effort is paying off for himself and for the chocolate world. Even in the bean to bar section of the industry, more and more Southeast Asian chocolate tiers are producing with locally grown ingredients. This growth hopefully will level the playing field and allow chocolate lovers worldwide to enjoy a more diverse flavor profile. Our next story follows a journey just as sweet. When Morgan Anthony and Celeste Tan could no longer cook at Michelin star restaurants during the first COVID-19 lockdown, they funneled their energy into perfecting a sugary, colorful treat that reminded them of home. Kuwait became their hyper-specific focus and unleashed a new craze in New York City dining. Angela Cho traces their journey from board and baking to brick and mortar. While the restaurant scene was fast asleep during the pandemic, Lady Wong was just waking up. We were homesick. We couldn't travel. We would just stay home just like everybody else. And we are from, both of us are from a restaurant and hotels, and that's our background. And obviously, you know, like during a pandemic time, we didn't really have a lot to do. So we were staying home. Morally, everybody's kind of low. So my wife made 
um, pineapple cookies because it was just around the corner from Chinese New Year. Celeste and Morgan are business partners, but they're also a married couple with children of their own. They started to make more Southeast Asian desserts to reminisce a taste of home. That's when they started making kuei. Kuei means is a traditional pastry. It means all is like a steamed rice cake, right? And the base of this, fundamentally, this kuei is always a rice flour, tapioca flour, uh, coconut milk, uh, palm sugar. That's are the flavors that grows around that area. So that's like a native to Southeast Asia. Um, kuei simply means is pastry. It could be breakfast you eat for breakfast. It could be for lunch. It could be for dinner. There are no rhyme or rhythm or boundary that you have to eat in particular time. It 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 could be snack all day. So it's part of the culture. It's very funny because um, you get kuei in the restaurant. You also can get kuei in the street. Like you know, like they're all done very differently, but fundamentally everybody eats kuei in Southeast Asia. It wasn't as smooth as kuei in the beginning. We quickly realized that because when we grow up eating kuei, the traditional pastry was was something that we eat, so we take for granted. It's not we learn how to make them. Um, so um, true to be told that we, you know, when we make it ourselves, we realize that how complicated it looks. So simple the recipe, five ingredients, but it's very complicated to put together. So Celeste messed up a recipe, then I made I messed up another recipe, and I say like, listen, we got a plenty of time. We got to figure out how to do this because we love kuei and we grow up with kuei. And we are chefs, so is we like to take challenges. Yeah. So it's like, how could that possible? It's only five ingredients, and then. He's a savory chef and from a pastry background, so we're just gonna figure it out. Yeah, what, what like, happened? The temperature? What? What is it? The steamer? What? What? What went wrong? To get the perfect texture and flavor balance, they tested hundreds of kuei recipes. Then they had to figure out what to do with all of them. Luckily, hungry people came to help. We quickly realized that that you can't make like kuei for one or two or four person. So you have to make by tray. We can't just be all eating this. <laughs> you know, this is not good for us. We've been uh, giving away to our friends and families. You know, their friends and families they won't tell you the the truth. So they say, "Oh, it tastes good, something so." But we like to know the, the real, the, the feedback. So Morgan came up with the idea: Why not we give it away and see how many people, how the feedback from the the real audience, real people who knows the kuei. Just like that, a COVID passion project became a pop up. As word grew on Instagram, they started pop ups in New York City. We started to have more fun as people that follow us been following so long. When we the the economy started to reopen again, I go back to the restaurants that I've been managing in, and and still I started to get busy as well. Mm-hmm. But we were on the crossroad, like where do we continue to do the pop up or abandon the communities? Like that's way, like we started to really think seriously what we want to do right now. So we really don't want to go and make some sort of a fusion desserts, and that's not. So we say like, listen, like we're just going to dedicate our time to create a really a menu that for this some sort of like a, a unknown uh, humble flavor from Southeast Asia. So that's kind of like we started to plan a little more seriously towards last year, and then we had a space that somebody told us that's available, and we came, we liked it, and we say we just want to open like something really small. The brick and mortar opened February twenty second in the East Village. When you visit the shop, you'll see two cases filled with desserts. The left case is lined with kuei of different colors, flavors, and textures. On the right, there are French style pastries infused with Southeast Asian flavors. We don't want to change a lot of things for the traditional kuei because what that brings back the sweet memories of their childhood. 
but we are still chefs. We like the creativity. This is New York, so we like to add the uh, Western side of the pastry so we can be creative and play around with whatever ingredients that we have to make, make it more fun. Some of their pastries include pandan tiramisu, ube patika tau, and chiffon cake with passion fruit curd. Like Salas mentioned, they are chefs and they like to be creative. Their Southeast Asian backgrounds, as well as their fine dining experience in the States, influence their desserts. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Vaidehi Kudyadi, Anna Canny, Sarah Mathis, Alex Tren, and Angela Cho. Meet in 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.